so I'm going to invite your attention to the book of Psalms once again, Psalm 119. We're kind of <clears throat> nearing the end of the chapter, uh, this Word of God chapter in the Bible, that really that's what it deals with, is God's Word and how we relate to Him through His Word and, and even how we deal with the issues of life uh, in relation to the Word of God. And... Each section, of course, of this particular psalm uh, that has been organized alphabetically, uh, it, it kind of emphasizes a different aspect. It highlights a different, uh, uh, different unique uh, look at the Word of God, and yet there happens to be a lot of overlap as well. And so we're seeing some recurring themes. One of the things that we have seen throughout this chapter is that the psalmist who I believe to be David that wrote this, so it, it's not ever stated explicitly who wrote it, but whoever the psalmist was that wrote these words did so at a time where he had much difficulty and affliction and trial in his life, and he found that he valued God's word even in the midst of his trials. I don't know if you've ever experienced that personally, uh, but sometimes it's, it's actually the valleys of life that draw us closer to the Lord and give us a greater appreciation for His Word. It gives us uh, an understanding of the importance of that, that anchor that God has given to us uh, in our lives. And so uh, that's kind of been the theme here. And we've, we've been looking at some of, the, uh, some of the unique aspects of each individual section of this psalm. And tonight we're going to pick it up in verse 137. So Psalm 119, verse 137. And we're going to look at why the Word of God is unique. All right? And so let's, uh, if you're there in Psalm 119, if you would stand with me as we begin reading in verse 137 down through 144. The psalmist here says, Righteous art thou, O Lord. And upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet do I not forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that tonight you would just open our eyes to some things that uh, maybe we haven't seen before or haven't considered in a certain way, uh, or maybe we just need to be reminded of these truths. But Father, would you give us understanding and illuminate us, Lord, and, and show us uh, truths that will be uh, helpful and even transformative in our lives and our approach to your word. Father, I pray that tonight we would leave here with a greater appreciation and love and desire uh, for your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want you to notice that this particular psalm and this section of the psalm uh, really emphasizes uh, the Lord and his character 
and, and the nature of his word. And I believe that the, the, the psalm in its entirety, Psalm 119, is really designed or it was placed in the Bible in order to give us some insight into God's word and what it is that we hold in our hands, but also to give us a greater appreciation for it. And so tonight, as we look into this section, I want to just kind of emphasize that, that the psalmist here himself talks about how much he loves and desires the word of God. I want you to notice in verse uh, number 140, uh, at the end of the verse, the second half of the verse there, he says these simple words, therefore thy servant loveth it. He's talking about the Bible, therefore thy servant loveth it. Can I ask you tonight, do you have a love for the word of God? Do you really desire it? It's one thing for us to say that we, you know, we, we understand uh, the value of it, we, we appreciate it, we, uh, you know, we would never uh, want to, to lose our access to the Word of God, and yet so many of us really treat the Word of God uh, with very little regard. And if, if life gets a little bit busy, if our schedules get a little bit busy, it's one of the first things to get neglected, you know. And uh, boy, from Sunday to Sunday, we, uh, we show up at church and, you know, we've got to kind of pick up the Bible and dust it off because it's barely been touched between services. And, and uh, it's easy for us to kind of prioritize other things above the Word of God. But here, the psalmist is speaking to God who knows every thought of his mind, every, everything going on in his heart, and he honestly before God is able to say, Lord, I love your word. Can you say that? I desire and I love the word of God. Over in Psalm 19, we're in Psalm 119, go back to Psalm 19 and notice what the psalmist here says about God's words and his commandments and judgments and statutes and, and all of these things. Notice he says in verse number 10 of Psalm 19, he says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So he says that, that uh, we are to desire the words of God and his statutes and judgments and commandments more than gold. Now, I want you to think about the amount of time that you have spent in your life pursuing after wealth, riches. Now, I'm not saying that you're setting out to be rich, but every morning that you get up and you go to work to try and earn a buck so that you can put food on the table, you're pursuing financial gain, right? And we put a lot of time and effort and energy into that. And quite honestly, most of us, if, we've, if we saw an opportunity to make a little bit more money somewhere, we'd probably take it. Maybe if your, your job is offering you some overtime, you say, well, boy, you know, Christmas is just around the corner. or This time of the year, we could really use a little bit extra, and I'm willing to put in some extra time and, and work a little bit harder uh, in order to earn some money and, and, and make life a little bit more comfortable. We spend a lot of energy and time going after financial gain and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself as long as it doesn't become a God in our life in fact the Lord would have us to be hard workers and the Lord has given us uh, in his word instructions about uh, about laboring and 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 how in all labor there is profit it's a good thing 
and God has made us to work. But isn't it interesting how easy it is for us to prioritize making money wherein we may not always prioritize the word of God. And then he switches from uh, money and wealth to the issue of food and even food that would be considered highly desirable, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Now, the truth is that we, we all enjoy eating, right? I'm glad that I, uh, that I have the ability and, and God's provided us uh, with, uh, with our needs, that we don't have to uh, worry about where our next meal is coming from. And, and I'm just thankful for that. I, I, but you know what? In the morning, I wake up and my stomach tells me, hey, you need to go looking for food. And, and in the afternoon, usually at some point, I'll, I'll start thinking, boy, I'm kind of hungry. And if I skip lunch, then I come home, and man, I walk in the door, and my wife's got something cooking, ready, getting supper ready, and, 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 and I desire that food, you know. And then, sometimes she will do something really special, and it wasn't too long ago that she pulled out of the oven after supper, a nice hot pecan pie that was sweet to my taste. Man, it was good. It was delicious. It was something I desired. I enjoyed it. It was refreshing. Why is it that we can go after finances and we can go after food with some intention and we even spend some time and effort to do it, but so often we neglect the word of God? Could it be that we don't desire it in the way that we ought to? Could it be that we haven't prioritized it in the way that we should? Job said, I have esteemed his words more than my necessary food. That was a higher priority to him. So here in Psalm 119, he says, that Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Lord, I love your word. But not only does he say that he loves the word of God, he also expresses that he's committed to the word of God. He is going to stick with it and stand upon it. Uh, notice, if you will, uh, in verse number 141, he says, I am small and despised. <laughs> he, he describes the state that he finds himself in. And he says, Yet do I not, or do not I forget thy precepts, even in a place where I feel low. I prioritize the word of God. I haven't forgotten God's words. Have you ever been in a, a, a place where you just felt low? You just felt down? And here again, this psalmist, be it David or someone else, he was not someone that we would look at and say he's small and despised, right? I mean, David, after all, he became a king and was exalted and highly regarded. And yet he himself felt small and despised. Sometimes we get that way. Trials and valleys and afflictions can make us feel uh, worthless and empty. It can make us feel as though uh, we are just, our life is as nothing. It doesn't really matter. But even in this particular place, the psalmist says here, but I haven't forgotten God's words. I love the fact that for the Christian, there is always a but. <laughs> you know, when, whenever, whatever the circumstances of my life and however I feel, there's a, there's a however, there's a but, there's a yet. Because no matter how bad my life might get, I'm still a child of God. 
I still have his word. I still have the truth. I still have something I can cling to. There's always a yet. <laughs> yet do I not forget thy precepts. And then he says also uh, in verse 143, Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delight. So even though I'm in a, in a place of, of trouble and anguish and pain... I find comfort and I even find delight in the word of God. You know, when, when very serious trials enter our lives, it really tends to put in perspective what is important, doesn't it? Have you ever been in a place in your life where because of the, the issue that you're facing, the things of the world really just don't mean much to you? Money is like, take it or leave it, you know. What do I care? Food, I don't feel like eating. I, I, it, it doesn't matter to me. I don't really uh, want entertainment. I don't have any desire for that. Because life is just hard and these things don't really matter that much. But even in a place of trouble and anguish and affliction, we actually find delight in God's word. We're a child of God. We find comfort and help and even joy. Have you ever experienced this where you're, you're just kind of down in the dumps and, and, and hurting and, 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 and you're in pain and there's struggle going on in your life and yet you open the word of God and in that secret place alone with the Lord you begin feasting on his word and you just find that your heart is encouraged and and, and, and you're stirred within you and you just feel like you've got new strength. You're, uh, the Lord is renewing you through his word. Boy, I've experienced that many times and I'm so thankful that, that I have an anchor that I can keep going back to. And, and, and when life gets crazy, this book remains the same. It's just wonderful. It's wonderful. And, and the psalmist here, he loves the word of God so much... That notice what he says in verse number 139. He says, my zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. We kind of talked about this last time, the fact that, that it's, it's interesting that he's not saying my zeal has consumed me, I'm overcome because my enemies are attacking me or because they're trying to, to harm me. But he says, really the greatest burden that I carry, the grief that I'm carrying is that people have forgotten God and his word. And the more that you really come to love and know the word of God, the more that it will bother you when people reject the truth of the word of God. I, I mean, it is a grief of heart to me, and I'm sure it is to many of you here, when I see the world blaspheming the name of my Savior or speaking ill of the Bible or saying things like, well, it's, it's an ancient book and it's, it's outdated and it's not relevant for our times. Why is that a grief to me? Well, in part because God is worthy and, and, and he's worthy of their worship and, and, and it just grieves my soul that they have denied him in that way. But also, just as, as someone who has a heart for people and, and, and I have a desire for others to, to do well and to succeed, it hurts when I see people rejecting their greatest help 
when I see people really uh, blaspheming the name of the Lord and his word because I know what they're missing out on. And he says, my zeal has consumed me. So you, you get this. He, he loves the word of God. He's committed to obey the word of God even in trial. And he's grieved because people have forsaken the word of God. Why? Step back for a moment and ask yourself this question. Why does it matter? What separates this book from any other book? What makes it unique? I mean, there are other religious texts out there, right? Why is this book superior, for instance, to the Quran? Or the Book of Mormon? Or you name it, whatever it is, the apocryphal books. What, what makes this superior? Well, I want you to notice it's superior because of its author. It's superior because of its author. Look at verse number 137. He says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. The word of God is unique because of who wrote it. It comes from God. Now here's the thing. Many people in the world today want to deny this book primarily because they want to deny its author. And I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard the arguments too, well, God can't really be good. God can't really be just. In fact, if you read the Bible, haven't you read the Bible? And God sanctions the killing of people and wiping out of nations. And then you'll hear people say, well, have you read the Bible? And where, where God says that slavery is okay, boy, that's someone who doesn't understand what the Bible actually has to say about slavery, doesn't he? Or don't they? But, but the thing is, here we try to take God and what we know of God and fit him into our standards of what is right and moral and just and good. Can I tell you that that is the wrong approach? We don't need to try and fit God into our standards. We need to conform to his standards. Because God is righteous and holy and true and good. I want to show you this. The, 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 the Bible is unique because it has a righteous author. Go with me to the book of Deuteronomy, if you would. Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 32... I want you to notice what it says here about our God, the Lord, the author of the scriptures. Deuteronomy 32, verse number 3. It says, because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Then listen to verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. God is always right. He is righteous. He is always right. Therefore, as the author 
of this book, the Bible, everything contained in these pages is right and good. Everything that God has said is a reflection of his character, his nature, his righteousness, and his truth. And the problem is that sometimes we don't like what God has to say. But if you don't like what God has to say in his word, you know what the answer is? You need to get right. <laughs> because God is right. If you disagree with God, you're wrong. Righteous. God is righteous and there is no iniquity in him. I want to show you just a few more places. We could look so many places in scripture tonight to talk about the righteousness of God. But go over to the book of Hebrews in chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and this is a statement about Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 7, our high priest, what does it say about him? <clears throat> Hebrews 7 verse 26, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests, the earthly human ones, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. What's he saying here? Jesus Christ is far superior to any earthly high priest because the only sacrifice that he had to make was for our sins, not for his sin, because he didn't have any sin. Because there is no unrighteousness in God. There is no sin. There is no iniquity. So if you want to know truth and you want to know what is right, get in the word of God and align yourself with it. Don't try to conform it to yourself. This is a unique book because it has a unique author who is righteous and holy and true. Romans 3 and verse 4 says, Let God be true and every man a liar. Now I know that there are parts of the Bible that cause me to scratch my head. There are things that, uh, that God said and, and, and God led people to do that I don't fully understand. But here's what I have to accept. His ways are higher than my ways. And his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And, and think about this with me. If God has to fit into your understanding, number one, you have a pretty small God. Number two, who is really God? If, if God has to conform to my understanding or my belief, and this is a very, very common thing, that we hear people saying today that God, uh, you know, I, I just, I could never believe in a God that, and fill in the blank, whatever it is, would allow so much suffering in the world, would allow these evil things to happen. I just couldn't believe, you know, the God that I believe in would never do those things. And so they have to reduce God down to some uh, powerless figure sitting in heaven somewhere wringing his hands and wondering, uh, boy, I wish they wouldn't do that, but I have no control over it. Friend, listen, that's a pretty small God. 
That has to fit in your understanding. And secondly, if you think that you can dictate who God is or what he does, then really what you're doing is exalting yourself to the place of God. The psalmist approached the word of God and loved it because he recognized its author is always right. And if the author of this book is God and he is truth and he is always right, then I can know that when I come to it, it's going to straighten me out. (laughs) I don't have to try and straighten God's word out. I need to let it straighten me out. So it's unique because of its author. But then I want you to notice that it's unique also because of its attributes. Look at it with me in verse number 140 once again. As he said, therefore thy servant loveth it at the end of the verse. Why did he love it? Verse, the first part of the verse, thy word is very pure. Thy word is very pure. The word pure actually implies that it's gone through a process of testing and trial. It, it, it has the connotation of, of being tried in the fire, just like uh, precious metals would be put through intense heat and fire and flame in order to burn up impurities within them. That's what he's likening the word of God to. Absolutely pure. No imperfection, no flaw within it. It has been purified. God has given us a pure word. Did you know that the Bible that you hold in your hand can be trusted not only because of its author but because the very words of this book were inspired by God and have been perfectly preserved by God. You have a perfect Bible. Boy, that's great to know. His word is pure. You can trust it. We're in Psalms. Go back to chapter 12, if you would. Psalm 12. And notice what we read about God's words. Psalm 12 and verse number 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The psalmist was able to come to the Bible and And open it and know that the words that he was reading were God's words. It was a pure Bible. And he was able to say, I I love it. There's something about it that I just love and appreciate because I know that there is no error here. There is no flaw. This is a completely flawless book. I think that one one of the greatest attacks that Satan has made on Christian people is to undercut our very foundation and cause doubt upon the word of God. We see even in churches and pulpits that claim to be Bible believing, you find preachers standing and rather than proclaiming the word of God are correcting it and saying, well, you know, really this, uh, this passage should have been translated in this way and really, uh, this, uh, this portion of scripture doesn't really belong in here. This isn't in the oldest and best manuscripts, they'll say. 
And, you know, we really don't know that it seems like there may have been something there that was lost over the years through transmission. And as the scriptures were copied, some errors were made. And so we really don't have the pure word of God today. And you find people that claim to be Bible believers who hold that position. And friend, I just want you to know that what you're doing, uh, what they are doing is they're cutting their own legs out from under them. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And if, if, what foundation do we have apart from his word? When you start chipping away at it and saying, well, this passage doesn't belong there, and this should be translated this way and this over here, well, you know what you're really doing is casting doubt upon the word of God. I personally don't want a Bible that I can't believe and I can't trust. I, I don't want a Bible that I have to read and go, well, did God really say this or not? By the way, isn't that really the first thing that Satan did to deceive people? Yea, hath God said? I don't want to open my Bible and say, yea, hath God said? I want to be able to open this book and say, thus saith the Lord. This is true. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. It is true, and, and I can stand on it, I can trust in it, I can have confidence in it, because it is pure and right and good and just. Proverbs chapter number 30, if you'd go there with me, Proverbs 30. And again, we could look at dozens and dozens of verses tonight, we will not do that. But I want to show you just a few that remind us that God, listen, we just read in Psalm 12, that the, word of, the, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. He said, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, from this generation forever. I want to just make a note about that. Among this group of, of people that will teach that God's word was inspired as it was originally written. But over the years, errors have been made. There's a philosophy that the best thing we can do is compile all of the manuscripts that we have and try to kind of figure out where God's words are, but what we have today isn't really perfect. Really the philosophy is this, there was a time when we didn't have the word of God until some people compiled some things and then they kind of figured out a pretty good, uh, a pretty good representation of God's words. Well, if that were true, then what do you do with the statement that thou wilt keep them, thou wilt preserve them from this generation when that was written forever? Were they always preserved or not? And by the way, on the other side of that spectrum, you have people that believe, they claim to believe, the King James Bible is the word of God, like we would believe. They say, well, this is, this is the word of God. And this is the inspired word of God. But you know what they'll actually say? Well, this, this translation, this King James Version, actually corrects the original languages. And it's superior to what was there. You know what they're really saying? There was a time that we didn't really have God's word, and God had to re-inspire it. Or re you know, it's, it's what we would call dual inspiration. Can I tell you? That is a flawed view. Why? Because the Bible says that God preserves his word. And I, I can pick it up and read it today. 
and know that I have the inspired, preserved Word of God in my hand. Just as someone could have picked it up 100 years ago, 500 years ago if they had access to it, a thousand years ago, if they had access to it, they could have picked up the word of God and read it and been confident God has preserved his word from this generation forever. It is very pure. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. So it's, it's unique because of its author. It's unique because of its attributes. God has given us a word that is perfect and pure and preserved. And by the way, it's not only pure for a time. Not only until those manuscripts get lost. Not only until uh, a, a certain period of time, you know, till the 21st century and then it'll be corrupted or something like that. But look at this, as you go back to Psalm 119. God's word is unique because it is eternal. It's eternal. Psalm 119. And look with me, if you would, at verse 142. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness... And thy law is the truth. Then look at verse 144. The, the righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. It's everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. What's he saying? I know that your word, your righteousness will remain forever. It's everlasting. And the truth of your word will remain forever. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24 and verse 35? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You know what I, I absolutely love about this book? Tonight, we together as a church open it and read it, and these truths are every bit as relevant as they ever were. But even after this earth has passed away, and heaven and earth pass away, and a new heaven and a new earth are created, this word will not have passed away. I believe that we're going to still be reading the word of God in heaven with the Lord. It's eternal. It's everlasting. Forever, O Lord, is thy word settled in heaven. Forever settled in heaven. This is a unique book. It's worthy of our love. It's worthy of our commitment. We ought to desire it. We ought to seek after it. Why? Why is it so unique? Well, primarily because of its author. Because, because the one who wrote it is always right. <laughs> there was a... What was it? Uh, I think it was Rush Limbaugh that sarcastically and arrogantly over the years would say, you know, proven to be right 99% of the time or 99.5% of the time or something like that. Well, God's not right 99% of the time. He's always right. He's always good. He's always true. And this book, written by him, inspired 
God breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's unique because of its author, but it's also unique because of its attributes. It's pure, it's preserved, it's perfect, and it's eternal. It'll last forever. Aren't you thankful for the word of God? Boy, I'm thankful for this book. I hope you are too. I hope you desire it and love it like the psalmist did. Amen.